con l'ongerizu d'obra vermiste. To podcast us portonger yesker et teonez us portongen veid. Welcome to Con Langery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. With me down the road a ways is William Annis. Hello. And up over in Maine, which is really hot at the moment, is Mike <laughs> Lentine. Yes, it is. Hello. Uh, Mike is joining us from his basement. Yes. For noise purposes. Noise and because it's cool. that We don't have AC, but it is 93 degrees outside and... The fans were interfering with the clearness of the recording. Yeah. I, w- I don't know if it would have been too much of a problem, but I'm glad that you that uh, we we resolved it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Now I just get to share our store, our uh, podcast with the spiders down here. Sorry. Yes. Spiders well... need to learn about conlangs, too. <laughs> yeah. Especially ones as interesting as the one we have tonight. Yes. Today. Yes. Well, um, people might be inspired to make a spider conlang, but this conlang is not for spiders. No. This conlang is for dragons. So, we are talking about something that we've wanted to do for a long time, because, but it was just, it was coming out in sections and it took for, took a long time for it to come out, and then we went on hiatus and all that stuff, but we're going to talk about and I will try one time to pronounce this correctly. All three of us should try and see who can get the best, the closest. I will but not subject to it to you if you do not want to do it <laughs> voluntarily. But, uh, I will not try any further because it's not a good idea to piss off dragons. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So the point is that this language was released in multiple chunks over times in Fiat Lingua, which is the monthly journal from the Language Creation Society. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's uh, eight separate documents. Um, introductory stuff, uh, a section on phonetics and a basic introduction to the morphology, a section on true verbs, a section on what she calls noun verbs, which are basically just nouns. Um but they have some interesting bits with them. Uh, a section on verbal modifiers, adverbs, adjectives, and possessive forms. Um, a section on sentence structure and speech patterns, which is discourse stuff. Um, a section on that's just a collection of dialogue, songs, and conversations. And then the last one is um, a lexicon. So she has the full Boazian trilogy, as it's called, mm-hmm. uh, for this dragon language. Now, each section is like 20 to 30 pages. They're not small. It's it's no. a huge amount of work that went into it. And I want to talk just a little bit about the presentation here, because it's not just a very big document. It is a huge document, a huge amount of work. But it ha- she makes a very interesting presentation. This this language was crea- created by Madeline Palmer, and... Uh, she has this conceit in it that she is writing this grammar from the notes of a linguist. What's the na- his name? Davis. Yes, Davis. I forget the first name. Yeah, um, but sh- that she found his notes in a university library and she's writing this grammar based on his 
very extensive notes. And, you know, the, the whole idea is that this guy supposedly actually met some dragons. And there's, so throughout this, this whole, this whole grammar is sort of like written in character with references to Davis's notes as well as, uh, including sort of references to his various informants, uh, with names like Bloody Face and Moonchild and Ash Tongue. And it's, it makes it, it makes it very interesting to read, in my opinion. So. Yes, this interesting mix of things that goes on here. So, so, I mean, is this a, a work of fiction? Because <laughs> a work of imaginative anthropology? Because she does tend to work in a lot of sort of dragon behavior and culture. Yes. Um, so it's an interesting mix of things going on there. Yeah, it's, it is quite a bit of it. It does it. It does read like fiction at times. So yeah, and. and I think that may be sort of the, the, the direction that she was taking. So just getting into talking about the language. Um, first of all, uh, you will notice that I tried to pronounce the name of the language and I'm not sure if I got it quite right. And that's because this language right from the outset, just looking at the phonology, is really kind of bizarre, but weird for, it's weird for a reason. So the only, only vowels can be voiced in this language and it has both voiceless and voiced vowels. So when you are reading the examples in this grammar, the only sounds that are voiced are the vowels that are marked with an acute accent. It's really, it just, and that really sort of, I don't know. It, it, it hit me particularly, but she has an explanation on it in, in that the physiology of dragons is different and it makes it harder for them to voice consonants. Mm-hmm. So, um, and obstruents rather. Uh, but they can voice vowels, so they have, they have voiced vowels. And there's other bits of it that make it very difficult to, to, that, sort of highlight the the differences between the physical differences between her dragons and humans there's no stops in this language mm-hmm. um there's there's actually a w so that's it's not necessarily true that there's no bilabials but she sort of explains the w as like it's not actually bilabial it's that there's something that dragons can do with their tongue that sort of that sort of works like lip rounding. So, and uh, there's there's even notes about um, what what a draconic accent sounds like and what dragons look like when they're talking because they have to do like ventriloquist tricks to speak human languages. Um, there there was a a a, a quote that I. I had to uh, pull out to say, and where she says, I would suggest no one laughs if they see a dragon make an F sound. <laughs> right. <laughs> Some really interesting flavor there. Because it's like the, they have to like stick out their tongue to do it, but it's, <laughs> but anyway, that's, that's a little bit of, uh, certainly there's, 
there's more than I could really go over, and we have to talk about. There's even more interesting things in in morphology and such that that we probably want to get to. So sure. I won't one, spend. There's one thing that's interesting about the writing mm-hmm. um, is that in addition to being written from the standpoint of you know a real field notes of some sort, um, is that. It's written kind of like a teaching grammar in the sense that you don't necessarily have to know about ergativity to understand her discussion that gets onto some of these issues. Yeah. But one thing that I both love and am terrified by is that she regularly takes recourse to old Irish for grammar examples. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, which is really terrifying. Old Irish. I no scares me to death. Welsh is more reasonable. So, um, the, the author has definitely familiarity with some interesting languages. Yes. Um, I'm not sure that I would ever have picked Old Irish to be an example of comparison to any language, um, much <laughs> less, much less one for dragons, but there you go. <laughs> um, what was I going to say about that? Well, now, does Old Irish, was that chosen just, um, because that's closest to, what the language structure is, or is that a con no. culture thing where the no, dragons no, 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 are no. near the it's, Irish? It's just, I just think that Madeline Palmer happens to know or have studied Old Irish at some point. Yeah, it, she just kind of throws it out as an example, and they're, they're, it's one of those things. It was the example she's familiar with to illustrate the points, is mm. what I was getting. Yeah, you could you could easily substitute another language, and the the dragons sort of. They are all over the world. So, but this, this particular, um, this, this grammar is supposedly, um, the, uh, focusing on the, on, uh, what she calls, what is it? Northern latitudinal Srinivasan. I'm not mm. even going to try to do it with all the voiceless vowels and crap because I can't do it. Um, Right, it's a particular dialect. I don't yeah, know. I didn't read all of that stuff. Yeah, it's it, it's it's a particular dialect, and there's and there's a whole family of draconic languages that she makes reference to, but it, she doesn't really. Um, yeah, northern Lat- latitudinal is the the one that she's particularly talk, talking about here, presumably because that's what. Bloody face speaks, uh, which is the, like the principal, the, the principal, um, informant for Davis. And, um, there's a whole lot of sort of, as, as we said before, there's a whole lot of references to the dragon's sociology and the dragon's ecology that sort of mixes and weaves its way through the grammar. There's, she does point out a whole lot of things that are in this language that are very different from human languages. The one thing that I really um stuck out at me as really particularly having sort of a real, like a believable connection to what she presents as dragon psychology and sociology is there's no second person in hmm. this language. There's, Two categories, there's speaker and other, but, and, um, we can get into that further, but the idea was that you never ever have more than two dragons meeting at one time because they are solitary hunters and very territorial, so they just don't, they don't meet in groups of three or more. So their, their social dynamics are totally different from humans. 
Anyway. I mean, that's an interesting background theory. My problem for me personally is how on earth do you imagine that they came up with language in the first place if they're almost never interacting? Well, that is another issue. And that's probably the one of the... I mean, there's lots of suspension of disbelief anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I realize that, but it just seems funny that isolated creatures would develop language. It that, being that, a, that a social... Thing that do they have... Come, come up to me, though, but... That I think that's just one of the things that, you know, you have to sort of suspend disbelief for. Yeah. Do they have an orthography? Is it a written language or is it purely spoken? Uh, as far as I can tell, purely spoken. There's, I, yeah, yeah. There's, there's no indication that they have any kind of writing. Because I know she said that there's um, the, 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 the author, Conlanger, gave what she uses and what symbols that would actually be. So I don't know if that's something that the... Middleman who, who whose notes she's copying or used, or if that's right. So the... yeah, I, I've described this. I, I used the the reference to the Boazian trilogy before. Frank Boas was a famous old anthropologist who um, really pushed the idea that to study a language, you need to have a grammar, a dictionary, and actual texts, and you must absolutely understand the culture. Um, mm-hmm. rather than anthropologists who sort of sat around and looked at things, he actually tried to convince people to become part of the culture or at least interact um, more, much more with people. Mm-hmm. And the conceit of this document imagines that the, he, she's collecting early documents from somebody who was trying to do things this way, and his orthography was weird and funky. Mm. And that in her document, she has modernized the... Orthography. This happens all the time when modern linguists go back to earlier documents of native languages. Um, if you look at uh, a lot of the languages of California that were documented by various scholars, then people come along and rewrite them, and they have to come up with weird orthographies that don't necessarily capture everything they're supposed to or mm-hmm. are hard to typeset, and they update things. Um, I think we saw this in the Mutsun paper of Mark Okren that we talked about so long ago. Mm-hmm. So this just continues the conceit of actually finding old field notes that you have to update to something modern. Right. She, she, yeah, I do, I do remember reading about like her talking about his, his transcription being inconsistent. So she cleaned it up and, and right. changed it a little bit. Um, there are admittedly, some very odd sounds. All of these sounds are pronounceable, but they're very strange. Like, there is, there is a, an S and a long S. There's no other consonant length. And she actually specifically says that it is not a geminate. So I guess, I'm not sure what she means by that. I guess it's not, it doesn't, maybe it doesn't really like, become part of two syllables the way a geminate normally would. Right. But, um, and, uh, there's sort of, you really, when you read through the phonology section, you get, I, I, I realize I'm coming back to phonology again, but, um, she, you really get a sense that she's get, getting at a particular phonesthetics for this language because, like, particularly talking about the various sibilants in the language, she has a sh, a s, uh, an S sounds, uh, a long S, um, an aspirated S, and then, um, there's a theta, a th sound, but it's like not actually, th- it's like more sibilant, so it's like a th, 
It's like a dental S or something. I'm not sure what she's intending it to be. So, definitely, like, when I try to pronounce some of the words, it sounds a little partial tonguey, a little bit like snakes talking. Sure. Yeah. Well, I assume that's what, that's intentional. Yeah. Which, which, yeah, it's, that's probably what she was sort of going at. Um, there's, you know, just little bits and pieces. Um, what else? And, uh, and the, uh, the affricates, she mentions. I'm putting that in quotes because I think only one of them is what I would call an affricate. The others are like co-articulations, but they're a little difficult. The, the ones that are uvular plus an S or a sh. That's not, that's not difficult at all. Uh, it's a little bit of a stretch for me. It's, I'm yeah. sure, it's, it's. Shotzi, shotzi. No, that's easy. Well, whatever. We all have our own little things that we can't do. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a little, it's a little hard, but I guess that, that may just be, it's difficult for me, but it's not really <laughs> difficult. Mm-hmm. One thing that, uh, I'll just say this about the, the phonetics and phonology bit. And then I'll be done and we can talk about other stuff because I'm sure we need to move on. But I will say having made sort of alien languages that have like omissions, mm-hmm. sometimes I have discovered that sometimes those omissions can lend and just as much to, uh, the, your difficulty pronouncing the thing as including strange sounds because like, for example, this language has no stops. Mm-hmm. That sort of, for some reason, trying to read along, uh, uh, like a, a sentence, uh, a decent sized sentence with no stops at all just gets tiring. It's just a little bit difficult to, to make yourself do. For me, I have a little bit of, um, whenever I try to read Hawaiian, because I'm from English, I'm used to putting glottal stops before vowels, but in Hawaiian, I know that the glottal stop is a totally different letter, and I have that same kind of, um, trouble trying to read through it, because I'm used to having stops from English and a glottal stop, and then Hawaiian is totally different from that, and then with this one, I think not having the, the plosives or the, the, um, the stops, it really gives that same kind of not exhaustion, but it's almost like a little bit of a of a marathon run for my mouth trying to get through a whole sentence without, you know, that little break in there. Not to mention the words are quite long sometimes. <laughs> well, it's a different issue. Yeah. Although the words in this language, this is a heavily synthetic language. We might even say poly. I will say that it is a polysynthetic language, and so the words tend to be very, very big. Yes, yes. It's, it's, I, I say it would definitely fit into... Uh, somewhere close to that, that polysynthetic level, wherever that particularly is. But yeah, there's quite a lot going on. And that, that can go into more of, let's, let's use that as a launching off point and actually okay. start talking about some mm-hmm. morphology. I think, well, you may have a bunch of notes relating to that. Uh, sure. Um, it uses both prefixing and suffixing as part of its, um, yeah. Morphology, which is interesting. Um, now, her, what she's calling infixes, are those actually infixes or? They're part of a chain of prefixes. I wouldn't myself call them infixes. Yeah. I mean, they're coming inside always because there always has to be something in front of them, but that doesn't, I mean, I'm not sure that infix is quite the term I'd use. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not obviously insane, but it, uh, it's, uh, 
a funny choice. Um, it's very, very, very verb heavy. And in fact, she makes a claim of the language that it has no nouns. Right. Everything is a verb. Right. And the way she does this is she has a small, a set of stems which have various kinds of functions that they can perform. They can be transitive verbs, intransitive verbs, reflexive verbs. And we'll get to that funny distinction in a bit. Um, she has modifier forms that basically answer to adjectives as well as modifier forms that basically answer to adverbs. And then there's an extensive class system which turns your, which turns particular kinds of verb phrases into nouns effectively. Um, even though the thing is still taking certain kinds of um, verbal morphology. Uh, so one of my favorite examples she gives very conveniently on, uh, <laughs> this is section two and section three part of the, the book. Um, in section, this is so complicated. Right. Um, section three, three on derivational structure. And she has this one root, meaning to warm. Mm-hmm. In a very vague sense. And as an intransitive verb, it just means to be warm. Mm-hmm. As a transitive verb, it means to make something warm. As a reflexive verb, it means I am warm. As an adjective, of course, it means warm. And as an adverb, it actually means angry. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are four separate nouns can be formed in it. Class seven, it means the sun. Class eight, it means a year. Class nine, it means warmth from a fire or hot air or heat. And class uh, 12, it means a day. Right. So her classes can be derivational. They are. I think I would say they are derivational in the, yeah. in the, it's like sort of like the Bantu system. Some yeah. nouns will really, some of these roots will effectively only ever occur in one class, but there is some um, derivation available from it. Um, going into actually her, her class system, it does seem sort of like a light version of the, the Bantu. Um, How does that seem light to you? Well, <laughs> there are 11 classes, but I mean, it's, I guess, I, I mean, the, the, the difference is that, uh, number isn't subsumed into the class system like it would be in a lot of the Bantu languages. It's, uh, that's still a separate thing. Right. So. Um, but there are still, but that, yeah, there's still a bunch of classes. Yes, there are a lot of classes. Actually, there's 13, right? Yes. 13. Yes. Which are roughly, um, classed into, um, what she calls intentional versus, um, non-intentional. Mm-hmm. I consider that basically a distinction of animacy. Mm-hmm. Is this, are these in the, uh, noun verb section? Um, the class system is pervasive, so it pops up in various chapters. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's a particular section that deals with it, but it pops up fairly often. And there was a very interesting little aside that was talking about um, how dragons try to define the uh, the quote-unquote younger races, which means humans and I don't know what else, because I don't think she ever mentions what other younger races exist. But, um, but the... There was just a little bit of an interlude where she talks about, you know, dragons have been confused about whether they should classify humans as small prey animals or as predators or as what. <laughs> because of just the, the, just the, the, 
fact that we don't fit necessarily in the categories and then a little story about one of the dragons changing the way she refers to Davis, uh, depending on how well he was speaking. Mm. Right, right. If he was speaking well, then he was elevated to class one, which included dragons, but sometimes if he was being bad. <laughs> sometimes, if, if, sometimes, uh, she would, she would still shift him back into, um, uh, prey, small prey animals, so. Mm. And he, he, Presume that some of the time this was because she was particularly hungry. Right. Um, some of the features of the noun verbs business makes me think a little bit of classical Nahuatl, or at least some interpretations of it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how much needs to be said about that. Um, it's a long chapter, and there's all sorts of stuff that goes into these um, funky plurals and stuff like that, which always comes an in interesting. Um, presents, and it presents the, the, the clenching. Um, well, there is that sort of thing of, like, all of the nouns supposedly are, like, derivations of verbs that mean to be an X, or actually, this, this was the, the thing that, that was getting at me. So, it seems like early on, I didn't actually get too far in the, I didn't really get into the, the noun verb section. I kind of scanned over it, but I haven't really gone into it. But it seems like from stuff she was referring to earlier, it's like she puts a reflexive subject on it so that like nouns end up meaning, uh, to be an X to itself or something like that. No, 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 no. This is a fundamental and pervasive feature of the language is that Certain kinds of verb structures are usable with certain kinds of subjects. Um, basically, animates cannot be the subjects of what we would consider intransitive verbs. Okay. They can only be the subject of reflexive verbs. Right. And how does that get handled? Uh, there's different... Yeah, like if there's a transitive... Yeah, yeah I saw that. Interesting. Yes. Um, so, some of these verb nouns have one set of endings and others have a different set of endings to accommodate the um, intentional versus non-intentional classes. Oh, okay. So that's, see, she was, she was um, describing it in terms of a novel type of uh, morphosyntactic alignment that, right. That is also happening. So this is where this comes into play is, Right, so morphosyntactic alignment is it a nominative accusative language where the subject of a transitive verb and the subject of the intransitive verb are marked the same? Or is it like an absolute, um, excuse me, an ergative absolutive language where the subject of a intransitive verb is the same as the object of a transitive verb? Yeah, and she does, she, she actually goes through all the different types and talks about it. Right. And um, her conclusion though is really interesting. So her, well, Talking as if she was studying a real language, she she made it up. But her her analysis of her own language is that it has a tripartite system, but not tripartite in the way we would normally consider. A tripartite is where subject of an intransitive verb, uh, the subject of a transitive verb, and the subject of uh, and the object of a transitive verb all get different marking, which is extremely rare. But mm-hmm. her tripartite for Serena Wesson is different in that it's the what is it the the subject the subject of an intransitive verb and the 
the subject of a transitive verb together, right? Right. And then the object of a transitive verb is a different category. And then the subject of a reflexive verb is a thir- the third category. Right. Mm. So that's that's sort of it's sort of like nominative and accusative with this extra weird thing. It is. It's yeah. It's it's like a it's, a, it's like some sort of funky yes. Um, and what's interesting though to me is that it makes you expect these sort of um some in some languages ergativity whether you use a split or if you're in a split ergative system whether you're using ergative or nominative accusative alignment depends on agency that can happen mm-hmm. so in that sense this is natural to have a different kind of structure required for um high agency subjects um to me based on the way things are split it makes me think that there's a distinction between unergative and unaccusative intransitives based on animacy. That's how I would analyze this without necessarily coming into saying that this is tripartite. Um, It's just that you have separate conjugations. But it's her language, so she gets to describe it however she wants. Right. Um, For those who are not familiar with the terminology, um, unergative intransitive verbs are those that have high agency for the subject, for things like go or walk, whereas unaccusatives have low um, control. Yeah, um, the, so things like fall or die or trip, things that you don't necessarily have much control over. Like the the common examples are like the boy ran is unergative, but the window broke is unaccusative because the right. window window doesn't take any action. The window just experiences something. Right. So you have something like that that's being mixed with the animacy of the arguments, and you have different requirements for that. And so that's kind of funky because animates cannot be the subjects of intransitive verbs. It's a it's a really interesting system. I'm, I, I'm, the sort of way that she presents it is interesting. I might sort of make a propose, uh, like William, I would probably be tempted to propose a different analysis of it. But it is very interesting. Um, what other oh, What a hilarious example sentence. I was habitually scratching myself. <laughs> yeah, this is a very difficult language to hear if it's windy. Um, yeah, well, that, 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 that is another thing of, um, if you're pronouncing this stuff correctly, you're basically whispering most of the time. But she like, and that's like another thing, I'm getting into this again, it's another thing about, um, the dragon physiology is supposedly they have, like, extremely acute hearing. So I should hope so. That compensates for it. <laughs> like, the, the they they just have like in like ridiculously powerful senses in general, but uh, hearing is one of them. All right. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, the verbs are pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I need to say anything more about uh, uh the noun verbs. True verbs are interesting. In the sense that we have a very straightforward, simple tense system. Mm-hmm. It's it's very sh- simple and straightforward, but it's also interesting in that, like, it's sort of because she's going with this, everything's a verb, tense gets marked on, like, every word in the clause. Almost, yeah. Non-particle ones, yes. Yeah, so it's, that's that's an interesting point. Looking at it, it was 
very systematic. It's just like you change this vowel to one of three different vowels for right. for right. the uh, past, non-past, or cyclical. And cyclical is like uh, a, um, well, it's sort of what it sounds like. Cyclical tense is for things that happen constantly for eternity. So, right. so like the passage of years and the passage of days, that kind of thing. Or, like, she gives an example of uh, Dragon's Hunt or something like that, and sure. that's given cyclical because dragons have always hunted and they always will hunt. Right. Mixed with this, there's a complex um, set of aspect prefixes. Mm-hmm. Um, the usual um, imperfect perfect kind of mix is going on. Mm-hmm. Um, there is an inceptive or encoative. There's a habitual. Um, there's one that is... Uh, the meaning of sudden, startling, or surprising event, which happens very quickly and with little warning. Um, generally speaking, this aspect is most often used when referring to a predatory attack, such as diving on a cow from the sky. <laughs> um, there's one aspect which is like an imperfective of geologic change. Yes, that's that's an interesting one, and she she kind of had a little a little dig of. Dragons live for, live for very long periods. So she's like, sure. says, has this little dig of, you don't hear this very much. And, mm. and, and dragons explain this by saying that, why would you say something? Why would you, uh, talk so much about something that's obvious to everyone? Right. Um, um and she manages to work an interesting dialect, uh, change and, and diachronic stuff into the section of, um, the aspects as we got different things going on. Um, yeah. Another thing that's really fascinating about the transitive verbs is that, by preference, direct objects are always incorporated. Okay. Um, yeah. So, is that under object affixes, or is that? Oh, you know, it's right after that. But there's, you can have um, what we would normally call object prefixes for the different classes if you don't want to explicitly name, but explicit objects are pretty much nearly always incorporated. And then the implicit objects are marked with class markers. Yeah, that is interesting. In fact, I, when I read it, it gave the impression that like they are just always incorporated, and there's not there's not an alternative freestanding. But the, the, she was kind of vague about it, and I did not go digging into finding um, alternative explanations. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's a very interesting sort of thing to think about. Um, oh, if you have a very complex object, then you can pull them out and leave the class marker in place and then put the heavy... Oh, okay. So yeah. she has she has a way to... You pull out heavier. Yes. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, okay, yeah, I see the example there. Yes. Now, is that the same kind of way to do it in um, other non-incorporating languages? Like, I think the, the uh, Native American ones, do they use that? Um, noun incorporation tends to be more restrained in every human language I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, human languages are pretty resistant to high animate nouns being incorporated. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. It, so this is unusual to have so many living things as possible objects um, incorporated that way. It would seem unusual just in general to have, like, the in- incorporation be the default, mm-hmm. just because that doesn't... That that doesn't like really jive with 
I mean, it, it makes more sense for it to have like a more restricted role as as like denoting something particular. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, denoting uh, definiteness is a common thing. Yeah, there's various things that that could denote, but here it seems to be the default way of doing things. Right. Um, the nouns still can be marked for number when they're incorporated, which to me sounds like simply a historical de- development where a particular word order became fossilized into morphology. Mm. Over time, it wore down into that. But I don't know. That could be interesting, because, like, there's even, like, phrasal nouns that get in, that get embedded in and incorporated. Yes. Like, um, a lot of the names for dragons are sort of phrases. Like, um, the 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 actual uh the 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 actual native term for bloody face is three words and i'm not going to attempt to pronounce it <laughs> because it starts with s plus s i don't think i'm going to try it <laughs> but um yeah this but like his entire name gets incorporated in one of the examples so that's right. that's an interesting bit um it's interesting uh or one thing is often sometimes people will invent, I say often sometimes. Isn't that brilliant? Often sometimes. Um, conlangers sometimes are uh, seduced by very regular patterns. Uh-huh. This language has not been seduced by regular patterns for the most part. Some places they pop up, but in many places it's not the case. The various subject suffixes, object prefixes, and reflexive suffixes are highly suppletive. Um, so you have a large chart, and we know how conlingers love their charts. There is a large yes. chart that has to be memorized. Um, there are some patterns, but not as many as you might like. <laughs> um, so in section four, blah, 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 blah. So this is in, uh, yeah, in section four, five, five on verbal classes, which is in section um four on true verbs mm-hmm. as a big long chart about the different class infixes and suffixes and all of that stuff. Um, right. And if you can find a pattern, especially a cross number, let me know because I sure can't. Hmm. So this is why George, I think it is actually as complex as anything the Mantu languages have come up with. Okay. Maybe, maybe it's just not, not sort of uh it's not explained in the same way, I guess. Right. Um, there is a, the the fact that like five of the classes can't take the innumerable number, or some of the classes can't take. Well, no, they all have innumerable. Nope. There was nope. no class inter- one. There can there cannot be innumerable dragons. Okay. Which uh-huh. sort of makes sense. Right. In, in uh, a way, there was okay. There's the so the unintentional ones don't have any reflexive suffix. Correct. Correct. Because that can't be said. Right. Um, and then there's a class that's like basically she says very unknown, but I guess it's a miscellaneous class, which makes sense to have. Right. Um, I don't know. Did we really go through all the the classes? It's it's interesting from a point of view of putting the dragon psychology against the the lang into the language, right? Uh, because basically, you have the class one is what is it's called kindred, but it's the class one is for dragons, which 
she translates the the um the the native term for themselves uh which I won't try to pronounce as kindred because it means like it 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 comes from a verb root meaning to be the same as mm-hmm. so it's like the they call themselves they call other dragons those that are the same as me um so anyway class 1 has that proper names referring to dragons whatever uh i noticed a weird thing is that um uh feces dragon feces and urine belong to class 1 that does not mm-hmm. s- makes seem to make that's, much uh, sense that's interesting that's why not really weird. i mean um, th- things move classes things associated with things move into the classes that they are Mm. Yeah, That's, you know, tool uh, in some languages, tools typically used by men typically go into the male class. Tools typically used by women often go into the, the female class. This is not uncommon. Yeah, I, yes, I just that seems that seems that seems to make more sense than than the other. I don't know. Maybe it's just my own craziness. But anyway, going down them, you have class one is kindred, class two is predators, then class three is large prey. And class four small prey, and that it the large and small is not what we would consider large and small. Of course but, not. But we are not it's, it's yeah. defined by um, how how much it would satiate a dragon's hunger. So large prey, you just have to kill one of them. But small prey, you have to kill several of them in order to fill yourself up. Yeah, and and that's what we were saying. Humans, humans often fall into this class four because humans don't have a whole lot of meat on them. <laughs> no. And then class five is just any aquatic animal. Class six is inedibles and also pejorative terms. Um, the implication being that, uh, you know, you're so awful that I wouldn't even eat you. And then right. you taste bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So right uh-huh. there, the first, like with classes two through six is all about like different kinds of animals and whether you would eat them. Obviously predators is different, but it's like they don't usually go after predators, mm-hmm. but they could because they're basically an apex predator. Um, no. So they put them in a different class. Here's a question. These, now these classes, are they pretty much assigned to the nouns or if there was like, if a dragon saw a particularly small, Hippopotamus, would it put it into small prey? Like, is it descriptive or is it just, um, assigned? Um, it depends on the word. Some are simply assigned, some are a little more flexible. Yeah. And that's typically marked in the lexicon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's some, some, there's sort of a, a, an idea that in some cases they're a little bit fungible and, and different dragons will disagree on what class to put something in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, that, that's sort of an interesting thing. And then the other classes also bear into like psychology is the, in that like you have celestial versus aerial, which is the next two. Celestial is you can't reach it by flying. So the sun and the moon and the stars, you can't actually reach. But then mm-hmm. aerial is things that are in the air, but you could potentially reach or fly over. So like storms and birds and stuff That's like that. That's very cool. Yeah. And then there, the, there's two classes that are animate and inanimate, but animate is not like living things, but it's things that move relatively quickly 
from the perspective of a dragon. So it's water and fire and stuff, but also plants and snow. Mm -hmm. Whereas inanimates are things that are geologic. They may move, but they move on geologic scales. So and there are and there are human languages that also distinguish along this line. Yeah, in a similar way, I would think I don't know. Is it as common though to put the plants into the animate um, portion for human languages? In Navajo, water is more highly animate than a stick. Yeah, because it moves. Right. I, that that part makes sense to me. The that water and fire would be considered animate. Uh, I was just thinking that um, humans might be more inclined to put plants as inanimate, uh, but I don't know. I don't know on the culture. Yeah. As I don't know a whole, any languages that have that distinction, so I don't really have much to. And then there's a class that's dead things and. There's sort of a mention that it really only refers to carrion, things that the the dragon found dead already, mm-hmm. which makes sense because predators would very a, a predator would be very interested in making that distinction because predators in general prefer to eat meat that is fresh as opposed to like scavengers will eat it if it even it's if it's starting to decay. So that makes sense from their standpoint. Anyway, that all—I don't know—all of that really sort of jives for me. The way that she organized the classes in in a way that makes sense for dragons. And then there's components. There's a couple more, cla- two more classes, I think. Yeah, there's there's components, and then the 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 basically the miscellaneous class. Um, what is components anyway? It's um this class's main parts feature of, parts is that of, of parts of a larger whole, such as body parts, sections of trees, and other pieces of other larger objects. Yeah. Words are sometimes placed in this class to their portions of larger dragon tongue, thoughts, conceptions and the like are also commonly placed in class twelve. Yeah. Okay. That's that that's about all we need to Yeah, it's it's quite interesting. Yeah. Alright. Anyway, sorry. I, I just spent a lot of time on the class system. Let's move to Another, I don't know. William, do you have any other points that you want to go over? Sure, I have a, a few things that were just <laughs> sure. <really> interesting. <laughs> yeah. I always yeah. have things. Um, there's a nice discussion in one of the sections on the semantics of adjectives or adjective-like things. Um, this is in section six, verbal modifiers, adverbs, adjectives, and possessive forms. Um, George has already mentioned the color terminology. Um Oh, I mentioned that before the show. Right. Oh, yeah, okay. Where is that? The, the different color terminology. Um, it's uh, starting on page 20. Um, what's interesting to me is we've talked before in the typology show mm-hmm. about how there are very, like, vanishingly few human languages that have terms for smells that are primary. Mm-hmm. What do you right? mean by primary? The word, by primary, I mean the word red refers fundamentally and you know, completely to color. Right. We have no terms for smell that match that. Yeah. All our, basically all our terms for smell sort of compare the smell to something else. Right. Like right. either it's one of the, like the elemental tastes, like it smells salty or sweet or something, mm-hmm. or it's like musky order. It smells like musk or something. Right. Yeah, it compares to a noun. Something like right. that. Right. Compares it to some other 
concept rather than actually denoting the concept of the smell itself. Right. Um, they don't have quite this system for olfactory in the dragon language, but there are some really interesting things. In fact, what I would call aroma dexis. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So she has a word for a smell with no discernible source, a yeah. smell blown from far away by the wind, a smell coming from upwind, smell propagating up from downwind, in parentheses, a rare event, and this term is synonymous with rarity, uniqueness, or strangeness. Mm-hmm. Um, they have several words for tracks and bent sticks, which either do or do not have a trackable aroma left on it. Right. There, um, there's yeah. one word. Let's see if I can say this. Yeah, that sounds, that's not going to go on radio very well. An olfactory trail where an animal tried to lose its trail by crossing a river or stream to disrupt the smell. Yeah, possibly successfully and possibly not. So. Uh, it would be sassy. The, the vowels the, have to be voiceless. Devoiced. Voiceless. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You, you, you did, uh, that the SH is actually an aspirated S. Oh, that's right. It's aspirated. Ah, I get confused. Anyway. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> um, the language distinguishes inalienable from alienable possession, which is very common in human languages. Um, inalienable possession is managed by prefixes. Mm-hmm. Alienable perfe- uh, possession uses the same, um, grammar particle that is used for, um, noun attribution, so for adjectives, for verbal modifiers like adverbs, mm-hmm. um, and this is this particle, you know, SA, um, that is used to link those. And that's an interesting multi-feature use of that particle that I thought was pretty neat. Um, so that is pretty interesting, and that's in the, the modifiers chapter. Um, um, can I yes? put back, since we, we sort of, we mentioned color before the show, but we didn't really... But we then we just sort of referred to it and didn't mention it. I just I'm just gonna mention quickly. It's basically it's the there was the, she put it in that dragons have actually a um uh, they they have two things relating to color is that they can see into infrared and ultraviolet mm-hmm. and they have. And thus they have color terms that cover them. It looks like there's like one that covers ultraviolet and then two that cover the infrared space, roughly. Um, and then otherwise the color terms aren't too special really. They, they look, they pattern in a similar way that human languages often divide up color terms. So yes. it's looks not, like- it's not really no. that big a deal. You would sort of expect if they can see infrared and ultraviolet, they would see not only those, but also a whole lot more spectrum within the, uh, within a rainbow. But obviously that doesn't, won't necessarily translate to language. And then there's a thing of they can see heat. I'm not sure if this is like part of the infrared sense or like yes. a different thing. No, that would be part of the well, infrared. It's part of the infrared sense, but like they have very specific ways of referring to how hot something is by by looking at it. A quick question. On a lot of these um, adjectives, they have like a dash at the end. Are the, do the adjectives get appended to nouns? Doesn't look like it. Or are they, um. No, that's that just saying, show? that's just, that's just the standard way of representing that it's actually a verb. Yeah, it's, okay. it, those, it's these a verb are, stem. like we're calling the, these adjectives, but they're verbal roots mm-hmm. that probably would end up getting adjective morphology. Well, because the, 
It's a prefix, though. That's why I wasn't sure. No, it's not a prefix. A, it is not a prefix. That's just simply root. saying that it's a root that has to have things added to it before it can be used. I'm sorry. Right. I meant when I said it's a prefix, I meant like a tense, mod- tense marking and all that are yes. is a prefix. So. No, there are suffixes as well, and I think mm-hmm. there's cert- some of the suffixes are obligatory in order to even have it in there, which is so that's why she puts the dash. Right. That's just okay. a notational convention that says this is a root. Don't take. Too much. Don't read overread into that. That it means it can only take prefixes or suffixes or anything like that. Yeah, it's it's yeah. just that it's a root and and bare roots are like almost never seen in this language. Mm-hmm. Which that makes sense. There's lots of languages that have that yeah. characteristic. Okay, um, I was just curious on that. Thanks for clearing that up. Yeah. Um, the language has obligatory evidentiality. Mm-hmm. Um, and the evidential particle system, they're clause final and they're mixed with mood and, um, negation as well and questions and all of this. So there's all sorts of stuff going on at the ends of the clause. Many of them, although not all, are also marked for tense. Um, so in addition to verb-like things and noun-like things, these, um, final clause particles are also marked for tense. So tense is marked repeatedly throughout a clause. Right. Is this, is this on, um, the next section? This is in sentence structure and speech patterns. Yes. Yeah, um, starting on page five. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's an interesting thing about the tense thing. It's sort of, so, um, many different things in the, in the clause carry tense marking. Basically all the content words and then these evidential particles carry tense marking. But, and the entire clause has to agree on tense marking, but if you have complex sentences, you can change it up, which makes sense. You, right. you can have the same sort of thing happen in English where you change tenses between clauses. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are a few clause final particles that um, don't aren't marked for tense. Um, there's one that I'm not going to try to pronounce. Q-S-E-R is how it's spelled. Um, this interesting word is not inflicted for tense and can be translated approximately into the word obviously. But it implies the speaker believes the listener is a fool for needing this information and carries a highly insulting tone. Davis notes, translate Claire as a spoken combination of rolling the eyes, scoffing, sneering, and turning away in utter disgust while muttering something about the listener's mother. (laughs) (laughs) The use of this included can start a fight almost instantly. Wow. So... This is uh, a very colorful description, but you get the yes, idea. Yes, yes. Um, and then you got various optatives and wishing kinds of things going on, which I thought was interesting. Um, it turns out there uh, there is one human language where some nouns in a clause are also marked for tense in agreement with the verb. Mm-hmm. I forget which one it is. It's one of the Australian ones. Um, things that I'm not going to go into the great details of. There's a nice long discussion of politeness in the language. How to be polite, how to be rude. Obviously, it matters a lot if you have gigantic monsters who like to fight, mm-hmm. that you be polite. Um, there's a very complex discussion on directions in relation to the body. You know, um, not just left and right, but forwards, backwards, up, down, and upper quadrants and various things like that, um, which are not derivational. They are, for the most part, separate lexical items. Mm-hmm. Right. They have, um, they have, they have a lot of... Um, I did not actually see that section, but there's like a note near the beginning that she talks about, like, they have very complex sort of 3D spatial terms, too. Right. Um, and a very complex, long set of terminology for, um, describing seasons 
and other sort of celestial and weather events, which makes sense if you fly, that you should care about the weather. Yeah, you have to sort of... And a long discussion of constellations, which are given names. How many conlangs do that? <laughs> this is awesome. Yeah. Right, so she's got her star map with the Milky Way and various constellations. Um, yeah. Apparently the the dragons do have some fairly advanced um, astronomy, so... Right. Do we have any really entertaining names of constellations? The rib cage, that's nice. <laughs> blood spot? <laughs> that must be the a wound? Yeah, blood spot is the Andromeda galaxy. Oh, okay. Um <laughs> I think isn't it blood spot is uh number thirteen, the triangulum. No, it's it's, diving... it's, the, it's the Andromeda Galaxy. It's huh. it's numbered thirteen in the top map, but it's number twelve in the bottom map, which is the oh, okay. ones we know. I um, see, I see. Right. So I just thought that was an interesting. <laughs> I mean, there's a long discussion of this. Yeah. A lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last um, document that was published, and I assume that's the end. Um, I'm not saying anything at all about the conversations and songs and all of that. I'm sure there's a lot of interesting stuff there, but I did not have time because this language is so huge. Yeah, um, there, well, I I took a quick look at it, and there's some some interesting little conversations. A lot, a, a little bit of it sort of gets into like morality and stuff. So, right, yeah, cultural things. Um, anyway, the dictionary is really interesting. Just for I don't know if you're not inventing a language for dragons, maybe not all this vocabulary is helpful, but some of the stuff was interesting. Um, there's one word that uh, means to attract an animal by imitating its mating cry. Wow. Yes. Um, I will say, like, if you're this particular vocabulary might not be that useful, but if you are doing what I, I I'll call an alien language to be more general, not not aliens as in necessarily space aliens, but a language that is spoken by non-humans, it is interesting to. I mean, even. For human languages, you want to consider culture and stuff. But when you're considering something for something that's not human, it's even more imperative on you to to get into, like, what makes their mind tick and what would be important to them to talk about. So, um, Let's see. One verb root on page 11. Um, as an intransitive verb means to be meaty shreds, to be torn or rent. <laughs> um, transitive, of course, is to tear things up. As a noun verb, uh, one class it could mean meat, and another class it can mean in class ten it can mean the depths of the earth. Hmm. And as an adverbial kind of thing, it refers to a slicing, cutting motion or manner. Um, on page thirteen, at the bottom right, um, the intransitive verb means to be winding, sinuous of an indirect manner. Transitive, it means to plot against. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, as a noun verb, it can mean demon or monster. Um, as an adjective, it means untrustworthy, and as an adverb, meaning an un- in an ugly way or fiendishly. I really like how she, how they how um, she shows what class it takes with the uh, Roman numerals. Yes, especially for ones that have multiple classes like Barry or uh, Shoal or Shore. Right, it's really helpful. Yes, um, another good one on the next page on page fourteen. The intransitive verb means to be forked or to be split. The transitive verb means to spear with horns, to kill with horns, or to maul. Mm-hmm. The reflexive verb means to be a male deer. 
<laughs> and a, a class three noun is a kind of deer, a male deer. Class five noun is a horned fish, and class six is a horned beetle. Oh, okay. Class eight is forks of lightning, and class eleven is sloughed off antlers. Oh, okay. So that's I, that's I just I, I love that collection of meanings under that root. Yeah. So, um, yeah. The the whole thing, and it all makes a a lot of sense. Yeah. Because you you know. You're, so the aquatic one becomes a horned fish, and then the yep. inedible animal one becomes an insect because they don't eat insects. Uh, all works. No, yeah. I know I've seen this elsewhere, but what do the, da- the uh, dagger symbols mean, and the the other symbols in there? You know what I mean um, by dagger? Are those just mean, footnotes or what? No, those are not footnotes. The dagger. She mentions all of this at the beginning. Yeah. Um, a dagger means that the critter referred to that is intentional. Mm. Oh, so that okay. it can take, so that it can take reflexive herbs. And those with the double obelisk, the double dagger, I think means that their gender can shift around. Their class can shift around. Um, to refer to different things. Oh, I found it at page four. Very, yes. I, yes. Yeah, I thought yes. I saw it earlier. Very, very, very cool. That didn't, there was one that was really hilarious on page 72 where she, in addition to organize this as a dictionary, she has a the, uh, thematic organization and a freaking thesaurus almost. Um, there's one verb which is marked as being disparaging in tone, which means to be incautious about where one defecates and urinates. Hmm. That just amused me. I could see that, um, that, that, that makes some sense in, in a, in a different way than than it would make sense for for humans, right? Yes, flying creatures need to be careful. About, well, anyway, yeah, um, and uh, I don't know. I don't know exactly how they mark territory either. Yeah. So here's an entertaining word that I think is useful in a human language. It just means for something not to happen, which usually does. <laughs> yes. Hmm. That's actually useful. I'm going to steal that for something. That's a good word. Anyway, the dictionary is just a mine of wonderful little bits. First, in ways to think about generating vocabulary according to a class system. Um, and also just interesting sort of lexical areas that are carved out, not all of which are only relevant to dragons. There's right. a verb for to come up to come up from underneath the water and pull something near or on the surface down, usually in an attack. Yep. Oh, so cool. Mm-hmm. Good for dragons and... Um, Alligators. Right. We should sort of mention that this is like, this is not any particular like type of dragon. It's like they're, they're all like the same species, but no two are exactly alike. So some of them look like European dragons. Some of them are sea serpents. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just a wide variety of forms. So yeah, coming up from the water to attack something is something that some of them would do all the time. Mm. Uh, anyway, I think that's really all we can, we can, the discussion we can do. We could continue just like reading through this. Yeah, we don't need to go through all the dictionary, but there, like I said, I just wanted to say there's some interesting stuff in here. I wish it had more examples. Really wish it had more examples, but that would probably make this dictionary enormous. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean the, the whole language though. We could, we could read through the whole grammar and, and go through a whole much, bunch more stuff because it's very, very, Rich, but we have limited time and Ooh. we have been all talking about this for <laughs> quite a bit. Yes. So I think it may be time to start wrapping it up. Does anyone have any like final notes about this? Nope. 
Uh, I would just say I'd highly recommend people take a look at it because this is it's it's like a treasure trove of cool little things you can do and different ways to look at it, and it's really nifty. It is. It is very nifty. I will agree with that. All right. Well, that's good. Then I think we can wrap up the show. Uh, I will not be asking these guys for final words of wisdom because we're not doing that anymore. <laughs> but uh, I will end with a little thought of um, as we get ominous sounds from Mike's end. Uh, yes, sorry. Uh, that's my dehumidifier. I'll be putting the link to all the individual PDFs. They need to make a page that collects all of these together. That would be useful, yes. Yeah, but... Um, all the individual PDFs I'll link to in the show notes. I encourage everyone to go through and peruse those. And until next time, for myself and William and Mike, I'm going to say happy conlanging. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. You can send questions, comments, or topic or featured language suggestions to conlangery at gmail.com. To submit a Conlang or Natlang greeting for the top of the show, see our Contribute page for details. Web space for Conlangery is provided by the Language Creation Society, and our theme music is by Null Device. <laughs>